You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number eight of Ask Concussion Doc. Uh, a couple housekeeping items here. Uh, we're doing a baseline testing webinar tonight at 7 p.m. So uh, for those healthcare practitioners, coaches involved in sports, um, it's, it's going to cover all the scientific evidence surrounding baseline testing, both for and against, just to try and give a good overview of what we actually know and how baseline testing can be appropriately applied. Uh, secondly, uh, a new podcast is up with yours truly, and uh, I sat down with the movement uh, PT. It's called PT Coffee Cask. It's available on iTunes and SoundCloud right now. Um, check it out. I think I did a story about it recently as well. Um, but yeah, it's PT Coffee Cast um, with me, and we talked for about an hour about concussion uh, and everything that we're doing at Complete Concussion Management, so pretty interesting for the healthcare practitioners out there. Uh, okay, a little bit of uh, some concussion news um, for those basketball fans. Uh, you may have seen Kevin Love get concussed in Game 6 uh, against Boston. And um, it was really great to see because he pretty much immediately pulled himself off the game, which, I mean, being an important game um, in the playoffs, Game 6, and pulling yourself out of that game and recognizing the signs of those uh, of, of, of having a concussion, calling the trainer over immediately, uh, and being removed from the game. And not only that, it comes to Game 7, and he sits out Game 7. Now, whether or not that's a choice from the uh, team medical doctor, whether or not that's a decision uh, on him, but, I mean, I think most most professional athletes generally will do anything it takes to try and get back into a game, especially being that important. And so uh, it was really good to see somebody kind of take that initiative and stay out for that important of a game. I think that really sets a good example for uh, youth athletes. I think professional athletes always have, um, you know, this, this idea of toughness mentality. And I think that reflects poorly down to the amateur level. And so it's really good to have kids see an example uh, set like that, so that's uh, that's really awesome. So good for him, good on the doctors. Um, however, shame on Shaq and shame on Charles Barkley. Uh, if anyone saw, there was something came out saying like I would never miss Game Seven if it came down. It was me. Like I'd be taking Advil just to try and do whatever I can to get back in there. Uh, interestingly, one of our topics today is talking about over-the-counter medication and its use in concussion, and. Um, Unfortunately, it's not that simple, right? You can't just mask the symptoms and expect to, to be okay. And I think that comes from an older school mentality from Shaq and Charles, but I think it was really good to see uh, Kevin Love kind of take that new approach. We know too much about these injuries now to put ourselves at risk like that. Um, although it is game seven, it is just a game, and Cleveland lived to fight another day, so they're in the finals. Uh, at current time, it seems that he is still within the concussion protocol, uh, questionable for game one in the finals. Um, and that calls the question up of, well, what is the protocol? 
Okay, so we did some digging, found out what the actual NBA protocol is. And this came from our resident basketball expert, Dr. or I guess not Dr., but Marky Buckets Bowden. And uh, so what, what we found is that in the NBA protocol, there actually is no time frame to complete it. So if you look at the NHL protocol and NFL protocol, it's um, – it's a seven-day protocol. Basically, it's six steps. So it typically takes an athlete seven days or so to complete. However, in the NBA protocol, they actually don't have a time frame. They talk about steps, but we don't actually know what those steps are. And in order to – and like his first concussion, and so getting back to Kevin Love, he was actually cleared to come back and play three days after his concussion. Well, in any other professional sport, that's a – very short period of time. Uh, like I said, most of the time it's a six or seven day kind of process. And so three days tells me that the the NBA protocol may be a little bit on the light side. Now, basketball is um, a lower risk sport than some other sports, and that may be why they're taking it a bit uh, a bit lighter. But um, the in order to be cleared to return to the NBA, you have to have no symptoms at rest, you have to have successfully completed a return to play physical exertion test. And I'm not really sure what that exertion test is, but what they talked about was stationary bike, uh, heart rate up, heart rate down, and um, trying to kind of mimic a game scenario as well as agility drills uh, and things that challenge kind of balance and vestibular system. Now at complete concussion management, we use the Chicago Blackhawks test as our kind of final return to play exertion test my thought would be that this is probably something fairly similar to that because our test is pretty pretty much exactly that description. They have to be evaluated by the team doctor, and the team doctor then has to consult with the director of the NBA concussion protocol, which is Dr. Jeff Kutcher, who's a neurologist, um, formerly with the University of Michigan, and I believe he also did some work with the NHL Players Association at some time. And so... I found that kind of interesting that um, you have basically one neurologist who is um, essentially not working for the team, which I think that creates a lot of bias in professional sports. We have a team doctor who's employed by the team and now has to make a decision when they have a lot of pressure coming from upper management and things like that to clear an athlete. So it's interesting that they've kind of offloaded that decision up to the director of the concussion program of the league. And so um, it seems that Dr. Kutcher is involved in every decision here. So uh, kudos to the NBA for stepping up, uh, keeping a player out when necessary. Um, he may still be experiencing symptoms. And I know that he came out earlier in the year um, and started talking about anxiety issues that, that he suffers with. And we know from just concussion recovery and research, we know that pre-existing anxiety, depression, mental health concerns like that can prolong your symptoms. And so that may be a reflection of why uh, he may still be experiencing symptoms. He just had a concussion a couple months ago, and so uh, that may be weighing on, in on it um, as well. So anyway, shame on Shaq, shame on Charles Barkley. Advil's not enough. It's not how you do it. And uh, good for Kevin Love and good for the Cavs for keeping him out. Um, I think that's great. All right. On to the questions. So question number one, talking about uh, over-the-counter drugs uh, as well as prescription drugs for concussion symptoms. Now, in terms of just overall concussion pathophysiology, medications, trying to use medications to help um, 
offset or alleviate the actual concussion injury itself. There is no pill that can cure or aid the concussion itself. Concussion is an energy deficit. So some of the stuff that's actually been shown to be a little bit better um, for helping out with the pathophysiologic process is actually on the nutritional side of things. So some of the supplements that are out there, creatine monohydrate, uh, magnesium, um, curcumin, things like that are actually more beneficial to the pathophysiologic process because they affect a multitude of different pathways. And that's exactly what concussion does. It affects a multitude of different pathways. And so typically drugs are set up to shut down or enhance one particular pathway. Um, and actually somebody who, who we work very closely with calls them basically one-trick ponies, right? So if you're taking a drug for um, like a painkiller, for example, it may alleviate the pain that you have for the short period of time that the drug is in your system. However, it's not going to do anything for your dizziness. It's not going to do anything for your cognitive impairment. It's not going to do anything for any of the other symptoms that you have, right? So you'd have to take a multitude of different pharmaceuticals to try and um, uh, try and alleviate all of the symptoms that you may have. Now, when it comes to the acute side of injury, if you have just been injured and you got a massive headache and you're looking to kind of help yourself out, um, you can take some over-the-counter painkillers. Now, you'd have to be concerned with things like bleeding risk, especially in the acute stages. If you don't know you have a brain bleed and then you take some pills that thin your blood like aspirin, that could enhance or increase the risk of having a bleed. So you have to be very careful in that immediate acute stage. And it's also something that you don't want to form a habit with, right? So if you're going to start taking pain medication, you don't want to be hammering Tylenol every day of your life. Um, Tylenol can uh, impact the liver and over time can, can create all sorts of things. Uh, and also what it does is start to create what's called rebound headaches where you build up a tolerance a bit to the Tylenol itself, and then when you stop taking it, you get a headache. It's almost a withdrawal symptom. So you can actually impair yourself and make yourself worse off by taking this stuff too often. Uh, Advil can start to create some stomach issues, such as ulcers and gastrointestinal um, issues, and so you don't want to do that for too long either. So in terms of over-the-counter pain medication, you don't want to become reliant on it. You don't want to do it for a long time, uh, but as needed, uh, to help you kind of get over, you know, the first couple of days, I think that's fine. Now, in terms of other medications on the pharmaceutical side, we don't really have any good evidence for medications for concussion. Um, a lot of it is off-label use, meaning that the drug was developed for a particular reason and people start using it for a different reason. And that's mostly what we have with concussion. So in terms of scientific evidence, we have no good scientific evidence for any of the pharmaceuticals that are out there in alleviating concussion symptoms. And most of the time, um, practitioners may give certain things like amitriptyline um, and, and various other drugs for certain kind of symptoms. Uh, they may give you sleeping pills because you can't sleep, uh, things like that. So they treat it very symptomatically with medication. Um, another big issue with medications is that they have so many side effects. And if you read the label on a number of these drugs that are commonly prescribed for people with concussions, and if you look at the side effects, it's usually headaches, nauseousness, dizziness, photo and phonophobia, um, concentration difficulties, memory impairment, all these different things, drowsiness, fatigue, sleep difficulties, right? So now we have the, the trouble of trying to separate 
what is medication side effect versus what is truly concussion related. So my thought process on this is if you need a painkiller in the first couple days over the counter, that's fine. Don't get hooked on it, don't make it commonplace. In terms of the other pharmaceuticals, I would use that more as a last resort to get into. If you've tried other things like therapy, um, like manual treatment of your neck to relieve the, the headaches, uh, if you've done vestibular headaches or uh, vestibular therapy, sorry, to get rid of dizziness and that's not working, then maybe you can explore that pathway. But I think we're too quick in our society to just try and throw a pill at it. And then you end up with a lot of other problems that are basically hard to tease out whether or not it's medication side effect or whether or not it's actually the true result of concussion. So that's my summary of that. Uh, next question is regarding the King Devic test uh, from Hainsey8, um, who messaged Concussion Doc uh, on my Instagram. How accurate do you find the King Devic is in determining if someone has reduced visual motor speed and tracking? If they haven't had a baseline using the King Devic, and what would be a normal speed? So there's several questions in here. Um, so King Devic is designed and actually it was originally intended for um, picking up learning disabilities, uh, particularly dyslexia. So as people read through the King Devic test, which is an ocular motor screening test, the test is really recording how fast their eyes can move, how fast they can pick up that information, and whether or not they're making any mistakes, skipping numbers, going back on things, missing lines, etc. And so it's actually good for determining reduced visual motor speed. The best application, and actually there was just a study done uh, two or three months ago where they looked at using normative data, right? So what you do usually with a lot of these neuropsychological tests is you test thousands and thousands of people and then you develop a range of what would be considered kind of a normal score for somebody of that age group. And unfortunately, the range for a lot of these tests is huge. It's too wide. And because it's too wide, it's you might be all over the map or you might be uh, at the low end of normal and still considered normal, but yet you're, we don't know how you were pre-injury. Your pre-injury score, you may have been way at the top end of normal, right? But we don't know that. If we're just using normal data and saying, well, you're normal, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think the best approach and actually what this study found was the best way to utilize the King Devic was to have a baseline. If you don't have a baseline, the question is, why the hell are you even doing it in the first place? Okay? So if you're not, if I, I won't even do a King Devic test on somebody if I don't know what their baseline is. Because other than that, it doesn't tell me any information whatsoever. Okay? And the same goes for doing a neurocognitive test using impact. If I don't have a baseline, I, there's no point in even doing it um, and, and on the post-injury side of things. So in terms of what normal speeds are, though, I pulled up the normative data for, in, uh, for the King Devic test. And what we have here, and it's all based on age. So if they're a six-year-old, their total time on all three cards should be 160 seconds or less. And they should have less than 17 errors on those cards. If they're a seven-year-old, it's 127 seconds. If they're an eight-year-old, it's 107 seconds so on and so on and so on. If they're an adult, 14 years or older is what they classify as an adult, the cutoff score is 57 seconds. So that means when you administer that test, they should be able to get through all three cards 
and the combined time total of that of those three cards should be less than 57 seconds. If it's more than 57 seconds, and again, this is at baseline, right? Post-injury, we don't know. They could be way higher than this after injury because they have an issue. Uh, so we don't know. So at baseline, it should be less than 57 seconds. If it's more than 57 seconds, this represents either a learning disability or the test is invalid, meaning that the player may actually be trying to score poorly. Uh, so this is one way for us to pick up a little bit of an effort test as well. So if they're trying to score poorly, we know that the test is invalid. Um, so I hope that helps you out. If you don't have a baseline, don't even bother doing it because it's not going to give you any real good information whatsoever. Uh, okay, last on the list is the study of the week. And keeping with our baseline theme, because we're doing a baseline testing webinar tonight, um, we are going to do a, this study here. It just came out yesterday, and so um, obviously very timely. And this was a study that was done in Finland, and it was looking at Finnish hockey players between the ages of 12 and 21 years old. And in Finland, all players within their national hockey kind of association, so in Canada it would be Hockey Canada, and there it's the uh, Finnish Ice Hockey Federation, I think. Uh, and so all athletes between the ages of 12 and 21 are strongly encouraged by the Finnish Ice Hockey Association to go through baseline testing. Uh, unfortunately, this test is just impact, uh, and there are significant problems with just doing impact tests, and obviously if you want more information on that, we're going into heavy detail on this tonight at 7 p.m. on the webinar. Uh, the registration link uh, is in a couple swipe ups from, I think, uh, Complete Concussion Story as well as Concussion Doctor Story. You can swipe up and register. Uh, if you are listening to this on podcast at a later date, uh, you can find the full um, webinar on our YouTube channel. So this was published in the Journal of Child Neuropsychology, okay? And um, what they had is 1,823 male ice hockey players in Finland between the ages of 12 and 21 years old at baseline. Interestingly, only 5% of all the hockey players in Finland didn't show up for their baseline testing, meaning that 95% of Finnish ice hockey players, although it's not mandated, they actually go through with it because it's strongly recommended, which I think that is way better than Canada. I think obviously Finland hockey is way ahead of Canada. Um, they were looking at several variables in the study. One was self-reported learning disabilities, two was age, and three was self-reported concussion history. And they were looking to see how that affected healthy athletes' scores on their baseline tests. And what they found was that individuals that had self-reported learning disabilities had significantly lower neurocognitive scores than those athletes without learning disabilities. Learning disability athletes also did not mature or improve at the same rate as they aged. So generally, as you age, your neurocognitive scores will improve over time. If you're a 13-year-old, your scores won't be as good as the 14-year-olds, which won't be as good as the 15-year-olds, and so on. With learning disabilities, however, they didn't have the same trajectory of improvement. They kind of tailed off. And so um, they did find that age was associated with these scores. And interestingly, they found that concussion history had no impact on neurocognitive performance at baseline, which some studies have shown that previous concussion history can affect your neurocognitive scores. Others uh, have not shown that, so this is on the side of uh, showing no influence on that. So the conclusions of this particular study is the application of normative data using norms 
just as I talked about with the King Devic, um, has the potential to negatively skew clinical decision making because people are not the norm. And this is obviously particularly true in people with learning disabilities and also people with exceptionally high cognitive ability. So if you're someone that has, let's say, let's say you're in the 90th percentile of academic performance for someone your age, uh, very intelligent, you get a concussion. So even though you're compared or impaired, sorry, compared to your pre-injury state, the issue is that you would still score within normal, but you're not normal. You're better than normal. And so that's why not having a baseline and trying to rely on normative data is um, not a good idea. People are not the norm. Um, also, learning disabilities often go undiagnosed, so oftentimes we don't even know if someone does have a learning disability, so they might not even know if they have one. Um, so ultimately, the take-home point is that obviously baseline testing is important to pick up the subtle differences uh, of an individual. It's the best comparison that we can have. Using normative data, previous studies have found that there's about a 52 to 54% misclassification rate um, of people when using normative data versus when you use their own baselines, right? So basically it's a coin flip if you're trying to rely on normative data uh, and it's a lot better to have baselines. Other thing to keep in mind is impact by itself is insufficient. As a standalone, unfortunately, a lot of practitioners are still just doing this computer test and thinking that that is gonna be enough. Um, I will be speaking more about this tonight. So just go and register for the webinar. Even if you can't make it tonight at 7 p.m., just register because we are going to be sending the video out to everyone who registers. Uh, so it'll probably be about an hour or more, and uh, it will cover all the evidence we currently have to date on, uh, on the practice of baseline testing and which tests are better than others and so on and so on and so on. Uh, that's it for me. Episode 8, out. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.